0: of Stories from Sydney. My name is Alistair. And I'm Jed. And each fortnight we tell a lesser known story from Sydney's history. Last fortnight we actually had a guest in for my episode who talked to us about a very interesting topic. Jed, would you care to elaborate on what we were talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We had Louis in telling us all about the history and uh, even I think I nudged him into giving us a bit of uh, his thoughts on the future of bolos so that would be lawn bowls clubs across greater sydney um i tried to get him to make it about the state but he wouldn't have a bar
0: of it and stuck <laughs> clearly to his uh, remit talking about bolos in sydney yeah i think i might have even edited out the part about you trying to get him to talk about the rest of new south wales <laughs> just Fair a clean enough. story about <laughs> sydney <laughs>
1: At the end of last week's episode, Alistair, I dropped you a clue for what I'd be talking about this week. I'll repeat it so it's fresh in your mind. Thank you. So this week's story is a well and truly rum-soaked story about Sydney Cove and her preservation. Yeah. You've had a bit of time to ponder on it. (laughs) What have you come (laughs) up with?
0: Well, not very much at all. I, I, I... Have this feeling that you've been very clever here, and that there's a lot going on with your play on words, but maybe, maybe not. I, I'm, I, I like it to somehow be about using alcohol as a preservative, but uh, I might be way off. I like that. It could tie in with our Egyptian theme from last season with the obelisk <laughs> on Elizabeth Street. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a little bit of pickling or something like that. Yeah. I have no idea. I'm just gonna. Just going to say I'm looking forward to a story that might involve rum again. It certainly might. In fact, it certainly does. Excellent. But before I begin our
1: story about rum, the Sydney Cove and preservation, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. And uh, this episode as last episode, that's the Eora people for both Alistair and myself. And the land on which this week's history takes place which is quite a few different groups of people, and we're going to mention those groups of people by name throughout the show rather than now.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. So our story begins way back
0: in 1796 in Calcutta, of all places. Oh, great. I think that's where (laughs) some of the the rum was coming from, the Bengal rum, right? Yeah,
1: it was. So a, a Scottish trading house based in Calcutta called Campbell and Clark heard of the potential of trading with the fledging colony of sydney and so they bought a ship called the begum shore and their plan was to basically fill it with goods commodities and send it to sydney where they heard prices were high Mm. because there was a you know a shortage in almost everything basically everything (laughs) 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 there was sort of two kinds of trade that typically went on at this point in time there was the more normal kind which is where you would go to a port by request and you know, engage with a trading house there and it would be a two-way shipment of goods. Obviously, Sydney had absolutely nothing for export at this point in time. So this was a speculative mission. They were just going to load that ship up with all sorts of things, take it to Sydney and sell it there. Right. And they were pretty confident that this would be super lucrative. And if they did it right, they could create an ongoing relationship in Sydney and, you know, make heaps of money that
0: way. Right. But they didn't have much that they were planning on bringing back other than money or promises of money from essentially the, the british government um because that, yeah. that was what was propping up the colony at that time
1: yeah there wasn't a huge amount of hard currency in the colony that didn't belong to the government yeah <laughs> so that was the that was the main client um so they were very dependent on on having a good relationship to make it yeah. work and so in order to do that they renamed the ship because that's you know if you name something after someone they love it they renamed <laughs> the ship and they called it the sydney cove
0: Oh wow! Okay, yeah, they've gone straight for it. <laughs> they have. That is a very, very targeted uh, business policy. Yep, they've put all their eggs in one basket there.
1: Yep. So the ship that they purchased was captained by a man called Hamilton. Um, I think he was also a Scot, like all the white people involved in this story. In this scheme, yeah. Yep. This is. I've never heard of any of this. this is great. excellent. Excellent. So Hamilton was an experienced sailor. He was in his mid-thirties, which was fairly old for a sailor in the in the Calcutta fleet at that point in time and he had a crew with him made up of uh, lascars which was the term that was used to refer to Bengali sailors and so on board the ship heading for Sydney the Sydney Cove bound for Sydney Cove we have Hamilton the captain we have the Lascar seamen, mm. and we have a couple of other Europeans. We've got William Clark, who ha- had a position called the supercargo, which basically meant he was responsible for the cargo on board the ship. He was representing the
0: trading house from which he came, Campbell and Clark. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so he was—he was the namesake. He's a clerk. Of the... He's not the Clark. Right. He's a Clark. Yeah, he's one of the lesser clerks. <laughs> and
1: it's—I'm lucky I'm not telling a clay type story about them because the amount of William Clarks in that family absolutely do your head in.
0: Excellent. We'll move swiftly on. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And there's a couple of other uh, men on board the ship, um, carpenters and you know various ship hands and what have you. So yeah. it's a mixed bunch. Maybe a doctor or something. Yeah, mostly Bengali and a few Scots.
0: Mm-hmm. With a lot of rum.
1: A lot of rum. Yeah, their cargo is mostly rum. Apparently, they had about thirty-one thousand liters of the stuff. That's a lot of rum. Um, But they also had a bunch of other luxury items and commercial fodder, um, food, obviously. And they had a a horse, a cow, and an organ. Oh, lovely. For entertainment? They'd covered a few bases, depending on what was in demand in the colony. (laughs) So the the journey from Calcutta to Sydney was about 12,000 kilometres, and it would require the ship to sail due south until it hit the Roaring 40s, then take the 40s uh, east like underneath australia basically yeah come around the southern coast of australia across the Bight, and then at this point in time van diemen's land was not an island or it wasn't known to the the, them to be an island (laughs) it was an island still was an island (laughs) Ten thousand years prior not an island now an island but unbeknownst to them so their plan was to go around the bottom of what is now tasmania and up the east coast to sydney piece of cake right
0: yeah, well that's, yeah, I believe that was the traditional way of getting there because of those winds, the roaring 40s. It, yeah, a piece of cake in a way, but also it's terrifying to think of any of these voyages back in the LA. <laughs> Yeah, It's unbelievable that people would do it.
1: Yeah, the risk, the chance of it going wrong was huge, yeah. um, which can only speak to the amount of money that could must have been able to be made doing this, that they would right. like seek this opportunity out unrequested and be like, right, we're going to go all the way over here with this stuff just in case they want it.
0: Yeah, and your prospects otherwise, I guess, that there were people willing to do it because they were somewhat desperate or, you know, didn't have particularly secure and safe uh, ways of earning money otherwise. So on the 10th of November
1: 1796,
0: the Sydney Cove set off
1: from Calcutta for a journey of what would be about 12,000 kilometres. First four weeks went quite well, but they were still a thousand kilometres from the west coast of Australia probably in the roaring 40s, and they hit a huge storm mm. which cracked the hull and led to the ship taking
0: on about six inches of water an hour. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing we were talking about when we said it was quite terrifying, right? Yeah, yeah. And they rode out that storm by pumping
1: the water. They had a pump on board. Not sure mm. what that looked like, but sounds interesting. Um, and then once the storm had passed, they tried to repair the hull, which involved this elaborate process of, like, tying up a bit of sail to another bit of sail and throwing it over the front of the bow and trying to stuff it, pulling ropes to try and stuff it into the broken hole. Oh, wow. And apparently that worked reasonably well to the point where the intake was down to four inches of water an hour. Down from six? Yeah. yeah. Kind of worked. (laughs) Not that well. (laughs) Yeah, so from that point on, they're just pumping the whole time. Right, they're just sailing and pumping. Yeah. Another month passes and they cop another huge storm. This is somewhere in the Great Australian Bight, I think. And this leads to a man falling overboard, um, sails get torn, there's now a metre of water in the ship, the pump's not keeping pace, so there's round-the-clock constant manual bailing occurring as well. Oh, man. Everyone's getting sick from being in a freezing cold storm. Keep in mind, these people have been living in Calcutta, and now yeah. they're in the Great Australian Bight in a storm off like offshore. Right.
0: Right oh gosh and they're not and they know that they're not keeping up and they're just watching the water rise ever so slowly every day exactly
1: yep so they round the tip of what was to them Van Diemen's land somewhere near Hobart is now and it's taking all the men that are on board that aren't sick to bail and they're still losing out so Hamilton the captain spots some land and aims for it and thinks you know we're done we're not gonna make it right so he, he basically pulls up the ship near the land. It's time, so it doesn't want to land. Yeah. Uh, and then on the morning of February the 9th, 1797, the ship is basically, he wakes up to the sun, and he probably didn't wake up, he was probably up all night, but the sun rises. <laughs> the ship's basically on its side, and he basically can't sail it. Oh, so wow. he tries to land on this island and runs aground on a
0: sandbar. When you say it's on its side, that's not because there's sand underneath it, it's because it's so full of water and broken that it's just tilted yeah. massively to one side okay. yeah exactly
1: if you've ever done any dinghy sailing um you'll know what it's like when you fill that boat up with water and it sort of plods along awkwardly okay so hamilton runs the sydney cove ground on what was at that point a nameless island in the Furneaux group of islands okay have you heard of them oh, i feel like i have um are they off hobart are they kind of they're between the north coast of tassie and victoria okay so flinders island and king Island are the biggest two
0: yeah, yeah king island where the cheese comes from and i think there was a lot of um sealing that like killing of seals for their natural products that was went on in those islands in the early years of the colony
1: yeah there was but at this point there is no people on those islands whatsoever okay so the ships beached the crew's exhausted and they're in the middle of nowhere
0: yeah they're in the Bass strait <laughs> There's no one who wants to buy their rum.
1: (laughs) No. No. No hard currency available. So they set about erecting some small stone shelters on an island that they've newly dubbed Preservation Island.
0: Okay. Good name. They're Uh quite good at naming things, these Scots.
1: Yeah. So they're building some shelters, setting up a little bit of a camp. And then they've got a long boat, like a sort of emergency boat that was attached to the main ship. Right. And they use that by salvaging everything from the ship and
0: moving it to another nearby island, which they've called Rum Island. <laughs> so one's for the rum and one's for the people. And they're kind of just sailing between them on, a, on a, a little paddling boat.
1: Exactly. And this goes on for, you know, a matter of days until after two weeks, the ship's basically so sunk that they can't salvage anymore from it. Right. And so they're all now
0: focused on their little settlement on Preservation Island. And their rum stores on Rum Island. Yes, and their organ, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder if that was considered worthy of rescuing.
1: And so on the 26th of February, so 17 days after they've arrived, they've got the longboat repaired, everything set, and they realise their only hope of rescue is to get to Sydney because there's no European colony anywhere nearby. There's no shipping routes coming through here. They've got, like, maybe the tiniest chance of flagging down a passing ship, but really yeah. their only hope is getting to Sydney.
0: Okay, and so Hobart, Van Diemen's Land is at this point. This is too early for the convict settlement in Van Diemen's Land.
1: At this point in time, the only settlement, the only British settlement in Australia, is Sydney. Right. I think Newcastle's not quite up yet. So,
0: are you going to tell me now that they're going to try to canoe their way to Sydney from from the Bass Strait? So the
1: longboat, the longboat has a sail.
0: Okay. Okay. So they can sail a little bit. Can
1: sail, but it's a not. It's not an ocean-going vessel. Right. And yes, they are.
0: <laughs> okay. This is a very exciting. <laughs> presumably, I mean, presumably it went somewhat well because we know the story. They didn't all just die and disappear. So I'm stunned that they made it very you okay. Thinking ahead. So on board the boat
1: the uh, longboat we've got William Clark the supercargo and with him he's got four other Scots I think or Brits in any way and 12 Lascars okay so there's 17
0: is that because a lot of people have died so far on the mission kind of thing I, or did they just not have a particularly large crew to start with
1: no the rest of them are staying on preservation
0: oh okay so they're going on a little a little trip to try to find help to then go back yep. and get the rest of the stuff and exactly people. okay
1: yeah so the most Hamilton the captain and everyone else is staying there
0: Because they couldn't all fit on this tiny little longboat.
1: Yeah. It's also extremely dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas as you mentioned, like there are, and I'll get to the people who stay there later, but there are, there are things to eat. So it's not like a death sentence to be left on the island.
0: Right. It's just that it doesn't have any real prospects of much changing in the next decades.
1: Yeah, yeah, you might be waiting a long time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay. This sounds a lot like the um, the Batavia, the sinking of the Batavia off the West Coast. Yeah,
1: there's some parallels.
0: Yeah, okay. And
1: some key differences.
0: Hopefully they don't all start killing each other. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So the men on the longboat are some of the first people ever to sail across the Bass Strait, which they didn't know when they started was a strait, but they certainly became suspicious that
0: was the case as they went on right because yeah they expect they're just sailing up the coast right now the east coast of a continuous landmass yeah so they i mean you know
1: given the sydney to hobart is sort of notorious for being such a dangerous trip (laughs) it's not
0: an easy street
1: they didn't know this was the case what they did have was a sextant to calculate latitude and they reckon it would take them two weeks to get there but pretty much their plan was follow the coast up right Two days after departure, they sighted the mainland and started heading north up the Victorian coast until a storm started brewing and their boat was quickly foundering on the waves. They thought about putting in at the beach, and then they realized that was a terrible idea because there was a huge swell. Yeah. So they pulled back off the coast, hove to with two anchors, and started bailing, basically. They were constantly
0: bailing all night. So the waves are big enough that they're crashing over the boat, filling it with water, and they're just trying to frantically pull it out with uh, small buckets. Exactly. And so they decided they needed
1: to get ashore. They were staffed. So they cut their anchors and tried to land at the beach, which was an absolute disaster. Completely destroyed the boat. Oh, man. But all the people and some of their stuff landed on the beach.
0: Okay. This is not looking good.
1: No. Now they're stranded in a place that we now call 90 Mile Beach in Victoria, roughly halfway between Melbourne and the New South Wales border, in the land of the Ganae Kanai people, and more than 700 kilometres
0: from Sydney. Right. So they've got
1: two options. One... They can light a beacon fire and hope for a passing ship. As I mentioned, it's pretty unlikely.
0: Yeah, because also the passing ship would presumably just assume that they were Aboriginal people and not that they needed rescuing because they were trying to transport rum to Sydney Cove. Exactly, which led to option number two, which is walk to Sydney. Right.
1: It's a long walk. Mm, mm-hmm. Goes without saying, no one had any knowledge of the area whatsoever. But they did know that if they headed north up the coast, they'd eventually reach Sydney. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's about that the only thing they know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. They're going to require an awful lot of help from the indigenous people.
1: Yeah, they didn't realize that yet, but they they come around to realizing that fairly quickly. <laughs> They've got very limited supplies, um, two small swords, some guns that probably didn't work. Yeah, I imagine they're pretty wet by now. Yeah, yeah. So some people are wearing shoes, some people aren't. The shoes that they're wearing are... Um, a sort of type of Bengali slipper that's made of thin animal skin that's gonna wear out very
0: soon anyway. It wasn't designed to walk on those sorts of distances on, on those sorts of terrain. When you set out on a voyage you're not really looking forward to a seven hundred kilometer hike, right?
1: No. They were hoping to be uh <laughs> only walking on carefully sanded um decking boards. Yeah. But they don't really have any idea of the terrain on the way, or certainly the culture of the people that might live on the way. In fact I'm not even sure that they they
0: knew there were going to be people on the way, right? And they have to basically follow the coast because they have no navigational.
1: Yeah, the coast is super important. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're going to get lost if they start venturing inland.
1: If they keep the Pacific to their right, then they will. They know that they will get to Sydney. Eventually. That's the kind
0: of navigation even I could pull off.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on Wednesday, uh, March fifteenth, seventeen ninety-seven, William Clark, who's our um, our journal man. Uh, He writes the first words in his journal, which is, we begin our journey for Port Jackson. Williams Clark's journal is where the information for pretty much everything that happens from this point in the trip onwards comes from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just be aware that it's all from a single perspective and there's really no way to check a lot of it.
0: Right. There's just one one guy's story and that's all we're ever really going to have to go by. Yeah.
1: And he refers to his group... Uh, in the first person plural a lot so it does it's kind of difficult to differentiate um, between people and there's not much in the way of interpersonal conflict that he writes about it's very much like we did this we did that and so they kind of blur into a, a single mass
0: right right in his telling where presumably there would have been all kinds of different opinions and frustrations and yeah disagreements between the group yeah yeah. I mean if I was walking with a group of people for that far I'd probably disagree with someone at some point <laughs>
1: Even you, yeah. Even I. Uh, so on on the fourth day of their journey, so they've they've marched for three days, heading roughly northeast, and they've had no interactions with the Kanai people. Although I think it's safe to say that the Kanai have probably noticed that a bunch of people have landed on their beach and started walking, <laughs> stumbling around, in yeah, strange clothing. So an interesting thing about this trip that they're undertaking uh is that a lot of the area they walk through it would appear somewhat similar to it does today except for the biggest difference would be the river crossings. so river crossings presented a huge issue for clark's party because they were quite deep so every single time they got to them and there's a lot of river crossings between melbourne and sydney
0: oh yeah there'd be so many right even just like ones that are fairly inconsequential now but would but if you had to weed across it with all of your stuff would be a well
1: they were all too deep so every single river had to had a raft built and sail well not sail but float drift across yeah man because yeah that's just the way the river crossings were at the time if you were to do this today a lot of these rivers are walkable in low tide because of sedimentation from land clearing and agriculture upstream and stuff but when this journey happened and probably because these guys were weak to non-swimmers yeah yeah they had to raft every single one and a lot of the Aboriginal groups that they came across were very helpful to them in that regard, which is obviously a huge value to them because it was a
0: massive um, time sink for them trying to trying to raft across these little river mouths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I imagine that potentially at times there would have been maybe fords a little bit further upstream that Aboriginal groups could have kind of directed them to and stuff like that or just help them to build the rafts maybe
1: yeah exactly both both occurred so by the end of march they've been away from the preservation for five weeks and everyone's still alive but they still have 500 kilometers to go to get to sydney and they do know roughly how far they have to go in fact clark keeps track of the miles they've walked in his diary um each day and he does a really good job of estimating how far they have to go to get to sydney oh wow yeah, so it's not like as they go, he's just like, oh my god, we you know, we've, this is there's no way of knowing. He um he
0: keeps a handle on it pretty well. Yeah, I remember reading some accounts of early kind of expeditions out of Sydney um, Cove that I think William Dawes and a couple of other guys went on to maybe get to the Hawkesbury and things like that. I think that they used to count their steps, and that it was it seemed incredibly inexact, but they they did manage to kind of figure out how far they'd walked in in which direction by, Like, i think making mental notes of like we walked this many steps in this direction then we turned a little bit in another direction that many steps and they would count mm. it all together and then you roughly on average how how far they would go in a step
1: yeah there was definitely a like a rudimentary form of surveying that was used in the maybe 18th century uh, wentworth lawson and Blacksland did some of that when they were crossing the blue mountains as well but i think that was probably more a case of Deliberate pacing of steps to calculate distance. Right. So, as opposed to this, which was walking like walking for the purpose of covering distance, I'm not sure you right. could stumbling do a, and tripping. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you had another guy with you who was just the distance man, he could probably walk a little bit behind and pace it out <laughs> in very exact strides. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so. Crossing the Naji River, which is just south of Eden today, um, near the New South Wales Vic border, they were confronted by a group of Indigenous men who Clark described that they reconciled with after giving away a few strips of cloth. So they were now on the land of a different language group called the um, the Dwa, I think it might be. It's a subgroup of the Yuin, who were an, an Aboriginal language group native to the um, south coast of what is now the south coast of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And, and this group of people must have taken to the party a bit more than the Kanai had because this time the women and the children came down to meet them
0: as okay. well. Interesting.
1: Um, and this was the next day after this first meeting was the first time that a group of Aboriginal people had come down and shown the party the best way across a river. So that was exactly what you were describing. They actually went down and said, you know, beckoned them presumably and Don't were like, this, over is, there. this is the spot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah, nice. And one of these Dwar Aboriginal men who was alive 50 years later in the 1840s told the story of that encounter in 1797. Oh, wow. And, and he'd said that he was appalled by the horrid colour of the newcomers.
0: Yeah. Fairly classic
1: first encounter um, <laughs> experience.
0: Yeah. They, yeah, I mean, they also presumably weren't looking particularly good at that point. Things had not gone well on their voyage. Um, yeah,
1: they would have been cracked and peeling and awful (laughs) looking pretty haggard (laughs) yeah and i mean half of them had scurvy
0: yeah yeah (laughs) it would Would not have been a good
1: sailing portion of the journey it's kind of like a triathlon (laughs) yeah so the next aboriginal nation they counted was the during people around tarthra and as they got to this part of the country the group began to weaken, especially walking over all these really difficult rocky headlands that if you're familiar with the New South Wales coast, you can imagine what a nightmare they were to to traverse on foot. People were left with their feet so cut up that they were forced to crawl. Oh, man. And two members of the party disappeared around here, which were the first losses the group suffered. Um, the way it's kind of described in Clark's notes is that People were too weak to continue and they were. They decided to rest for a bit and they'd catch them up. you right. And um, they never did. And that happens a few times throughout this journey and they, no one ever catches catches them up. Once you get left behind to, to recuperate,
0: yeah. that seems to be it. I think that happens quite a lot in these kind of really extreme circumstances where people have to keep going to get to the end destination and people have to kind of get left behind and they always say they'll catch up. But it's kind of, I guess i guess a mental way of getting around the fact that you're probably never going to see the people again
1: yeah and because we as i said it all comes from clark's journals we don't know what happened to any of these people that get left behind there's no of these two people who are bengali there's no we we have no information as to what might have happened to them right doesn't stop people speculating (laughs) at this point in time also the rice supplies run out so it's all hunting and gathering Right. Um, but despite this, Clark actually remains quite upbeat describing the beauty of the land he's crossing. He describes crossing a delightful plain and listening to the roaring of the surf on the seashore.
0: Hmm. That's, yeah, well, good for him that he's able to keep <laughs> up, appreciate the beauty of nature while uh, people are starving around him and failing to keep up.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it is a tremendously beautiful part of the world. Um, I found yeah. out that Marimbula is actually a Jurenganj word that means beautiful place of plenty or paradise. Oh, well, yeah. So um, Clark, not the first person to have these thoughts.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I imagine it would be very beautiful, but really extreme circumstances. And I imagine they would have needed a lot of help at this point from the the Aboriginal people to point out what's edible, what would help them um, keep going, and presumably to help them to hunt as well, because I imagine they wouldn't know the best way of going around about it or have the tools, perhaps
1: yeah once again it's um certain interactions are mentioned in fairly significant detail in the diary but others aren't so a lot of it's conjecture i mean i think it's safe to say there would have been some limited fishing ability in the group they were you know seafarers after all but there's no doubt that the, the knowledge and experience of the Aboriginal people they met was invaluable. There's a lot of mentions of um, exchanging things and gift-giving of fish. Uh, and also, there's uh, they pass huge middens of clamshells and stuff. Right. So there's obviously plenty of seafood to eat in the area. And that's pretty much what their diet consists entirely of.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So just south of Bermagui Creek, Clark's party was confronted with a group of 50 armed during Gunge Men. This was the first time mm-hmm. they'd been sort of confronted. Yeah. Um, And they diffused the situation with a mixture of things. They displayed, demonstrated their friendship through gestures. They gave some gifts and um, they did a small show of their strength by doing a bit of a pose with their uh, guns and and knives. Okay. Hoping that the word had sort of filtered down from Sydney what the guns could do.
0: Right. Even though we are still conjecture, but probably theirs don't work at this point.
1: Yeah, we don't actually know. They They never mentioned firing them
0: yeah but they, they, they
1: do carry them
0: it is interesting because the if you think of the first interactions that for instance captain cook had in um, what's now called botany bay um, with aboriginal people it does not take long before they're firing rifles and it just kind of goes to show with with this group that presumably had very little to no firearms that they could get along a lot better in first contact if they didn't have this kind of fallback to suddenly just start shooting rifles to kind of assert authority or kind of dominate their interaction yeah well it's such a different type
1: of first contact because there's a power imbalance a great power imbalance but it's going in the other direction yeah on april the 11th they reached wallaga lake land of the wabunga people clark started to discern the cultural and linguistic differences between the people they met so in his journal he remarked that quote As far as we could understand, these natives were of a different tribe from those we had seen and were then at war with them. They possessed a liberality to which the others were strangers and freely gave us a part of the little they had." The Wolbanga even invited the visitors back to their camp to stay the night on the lake shore. Um, The group was paraded around and subject to the women's and children's curiosity. And then, sticking with common ground, Clark and Thompson decided to mime the fierce and intimidating demeanor of the Dhringanj men they'd encountered. So I feel like from this encounter, it's pretty obvious that word about them is preceding them up the coast, not surprisingly. Yeah. So after their um, overnight stay at the Wobbanger camp, some of the Wobbanger men followed the party and canoed them across the three largest rivers on their country, which is the three rivers that are today at Naruma, Turos and Maruya. Clark describes the Wobbanger canoes as being made of bark about eight feet long and two feet wide. And each man could take four passengers in his canoe. Wow. Yeah. That's a big canoe. Clark found it super impressive that they could carry so many people stably, even at the same time while he was deriding the canoe as of like inferior design. Right. Which is just difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th- I mean, like, they're definitely not used to seeing uh, things made of bark to that extent. Yeah. But that, I mean, that is a very impressive canoe for, like to fit four people plus the person paddling.
1: Yeah, and people kept, they kept falling out of it. So it obviously required
0: a certain talent to, um, to ride. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that that's quite a common theme because um, I was, again, reading about uh, different areas around Sydney and the Hawkesbury and stuff, and definitely when the British were tried to get into any of these bark canoes, they inevitably fell off. It required quite a lot of skill and balance to, to manoeuvre. Mm. Um,
1: the Wallbanger also gave them food and directed them towards fresh water, uh, but despite all this assistance on April the 16th, nine of the last cars the Bengali men were left behind as they also could walk no further same deal
0: they were going to catch up but they've never been seen or heard from again right it does seem that it's only the Bengalis that are being left behind how many what what was the makeup of the group between the kind of like vaguely Scottish it was 12 Bengalis and five white guys right does make you feel like maybe they were not getting the same amount of supplies or I don't know something was going on yeah That was meaning that they were getting left behind like, entirely.
1: Yeah. So, um, so by this stage, the group's extremely weak and openly dependent on Aboriginal hospitality. Yeah. And uh, Clark wrote as they left Uludulla that they had walked ten or twelve miles each day without meeting any natives and being wholly without nourishment, almost perished for want.
0: Right. So they're really dependent on meeting meeting <laughs> Aboriginal people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're aware of that now. <laughs> like, <laughs> please, <laughs> please, just. <laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> we didn't an Aboriginal group we need some food but,
1: but they're nearly there if they're at Aladulla. oh well I mean you walk, you walk
0: to Aladulla, <laughs> and uh, let me know if you feel that way I don't know if I started deep down in Victoria I'd be pretty happy if I was in Aladullah. Mm. so at 9am on
1: April 26 Clark's party reaches uh, Rec Bay near Sussex Inlet which is on Wandandian country and here he sees a group of uh, Wandandian men on a hillside and he thought that they appeared friendly They met with the group and they were given fish but then they were confronted by a larger group of over 100 men that were shouting and waving spears so by this point clark's party is only six and during this encounter clark is speared through both hands um and some of the other members of the group are also wounded right after
0: that spearing the wandandian leave um leaving clark to pull the spears out right and i would imagine just in the same way that we were talking about a manly actually in the teaser episode Mm. um that that these spearings would not be accidentally through kind of peripheral parts of the body i imagine that they they weren't missed attempts to kill someone they were actually kind of purposeful attempts to to injure in such a way as to not take life but to to get a message across yeah yeah quite hard Uh, to hit someone's hand with spears
1: oh absolutely (laughs) and as it's 100 versus six yeah so there's no doubt in i think anyone's mind here that they could have killed them if they wanted to anyone could kill them at any point right um so yeah i think that knowing that what we do about eastern australia aboriginal culture it's highly likely yeah this was some sort of ritual and possibly justice for failing to observe correct protocol around entering country right and to sort of add add credence to what you're saying there <clears throat> the group of men reappeared and actually invited the
0: Clark's party back to their campsite. Right, okay, so it's kind of like once that that form of justice had been enacted, that then they, they were able to move to an, another stage of their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And so here they leave two more men
1: behind, so they're down to being a party of four. Wow, yeah. But Clark knew that if they could keep up their pace, they'd be in Sydney in two weeks. Right. Man, they're going to limp over the finish line. <laughs> so... Clark's diarising really drops off after he's been speared through both (laughs) hands. I feel like you've been waiting for that line for a while. (laughs) And he starts writing things like, we walked for 15 days, or uh, the days were much the same. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't be up for much raining after that either. On May 15th, after leaving Thoreau, Clark notes a beach strewn with large chunks of coal, which he uses to make a roaring fire. And then in a rare example of him referring to people directly in his journal, he uh, states that the carpenter, who he never names, was becoming increasingly agitated and seemed to be at odds with the rest of the group about how to engage with the local population, um, often seizing their fish and offering nothing in return. And Clark was concerned that as the group weakened, his
0: fairly hostile manner was going to get them killed, basically. Right. I imagine also, like, mental health issues would be (laughs) rife at this point. Like, being able to hold it together would be a miracle. Yeah, and they're so close. Yeah.
1: So as they enter the Royal National Park, another member of the party, um, Thompson, he can go no further, and so the carpenter agrees to wait with him there, Hmm. somewhere in the Royal. So there's three who continue on, which is Clark, his Bengali manservant, uh, unnamed, and Seaman John Bennett. Yeah, wow. Well. And they reach Guatemala Beach, um, which is in the Royal, sort of halfway up the Royal, um, so getting towards Port Hacking. And by the time they get to Guatemala, the men are so
0: weak that they're crawling through the sand. Oh, boy. Yeah, if it seems like a film or something, you know, like just as they get to the end, they're really <laughs> collapsing and then there'll be some light on the horizon. Well, there is. On May 17th, they spot a fishing boat offshore and flag it down. There you go. So they made it yeah that would make sense right so they didn't have to they didn't have to cross botany bay or anything like that no they would have walked around i guess (laughs) well we'll never know uh i'd say they would have
1: boated i
0: reckon across the mouth
1: yeah it's such a long walk around anyway so they arrive in sydney and they're taken straight to government house to tell their story to governor hunter right um and then also uh george bass and matthew flinders who are in the colony come to see them and have a chat
0: I was going to say this would be of great interest to
1: those two. After dropping Clark and Bennett and um, the unnamed Bengali in Sydney, the fisherman returns to Guatemala to look for Thompson and the carpenter based on the directions Clark gave him, found blood and some of their possessions, but neither of them. And what's interesting here is that the media and general opinion tends to uh, and and also i should say hunter blame um in fact hunter said that took what was left there as proof that they'd been murdered by the natives which was sort of a fairly predictable and popular assumption right but clark blamed them their disappearance on the disposition of the
0: carpenter right <laughs> which he'd already yeah i mean it was kind of interesting that the carpenter chose to stay back with that guy i want i wonder if yeah. he was just losing it completely or whether he was also weak or whether he was just I don't know, going on some violent fantasy mission where he was going to get into conflict with people. Mm. And so three months later,
1: Clark and Bass head down the south coast together, once Clark's a bit better, to show him the coal, which they were super, Bass was super interested in. And a um, Darawal man, native man from the area, showed them two skeletons. Oh. Um, which, yeah, Hunter took to be proof that they'd been murdered by the, by the um, Darawal people. <laughs> Right, not very conclusive proof, but yeah <clears throat> no, yeah. no, and I tend to be more inclined to go with Clark's assessment, yeah, so on the thirtieth of May, two boats were sent south
0: back to Preservation Island. I was going to say, yeah, there's there's still the majority of the crew just kicking about in the street, right, yeah, as with setting in, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah yeah, I would I feel like it would be almost worse to be the people left behind, just waiting and not knowing whether. The rescue mission has made it. Yeah. Because you could just be stuck there forever, right? Yeah, potentially. And potentially. And just
1: perish there. Hamilton, who's the captain of the um, Sydney Cove, who's nominally head of the group stranded on preservation, he was increasingly convinced
0: that the rescue mission had failed. <laughs> right. Because <Which laughs> it had taken a lot longer than it should have. Yeah. What? Well, how long has this been at this point? It's three months. Okay. They made. It seems like pretty decent timeline.
1: Hmm. I reckon they did a bang-up job. Yeah. So while they'd been gone, the weather had turned absolutely awful on Preservation Island, and Hamilton and his men had set about setting up a small agricultural settlement with Ooh. their one cow and horse. Oh, I forgot about that. You mentioned that right at the start, mm. that they had a cow and a horse with them. Yep, yep. The first farm animals in what was to become modern-day Tasmania, they were. yeah and an organ
0: first first musical first instrument. organ
1: yeah <laughs> i think the organ might have gone down with the wreck but they had an abundance of wildlife that called the island home most notably seasonal mutton birds that migrated briefly there yeah and they came in such numbers that uh, hamilton wrote in his journal that they turned the sky dark as they arrived oh wow
0: a bit like bats in the uh uh, it's More meaty. Park, but 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 <laughs> called mutton birds, which gives you an indication that they were full of delicious meat. Yeah, so they spent a lot of time uh, smoking the mutton birds. Right, so they really, in some ways, wouldn't have been short on food, and they were actually doing all right.
1: They were fine, yeah. And there was soaks on the um, island full of fresh water, so they they were going to be fine if they could survive the cold. I think is probably the biggest thing. Yeah. So when the boats arrived to rescue them, they were only there for the people and a larger ship would be coming later for the stuff. Right. And so a few men were asked to stay put to guard the supplies.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Imagine being those people.
1: Yeah. Well, one guy who volunteered was John Bennett, who had walked. He was one of the three that walked all the way to Sydney. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he spent three weeks in Sydney recuperating and then went back to preservation
0: to wait again. Gee. mustn't have liked what he found in sydney very much (laughs) yeah i'll just go back to the island with the rum Mm. and the mutton birds so the two boats full of the survivors headed back to sydney
1: and as they did that a severe gale broke out which led to one ship sinking oh no which was the death of the captain who had volunteered it along with eight bengali seamen who were on board that boat who had survived the first wreck and then died in the rescue oh no sorry there were only nine people who died on this boat it was a it was a much smaller boat i don't think it was i don't think it was particularly well suited for the going to the bass strait on a rescue mission in winter yeah quite frankly
0: yeah also does seem again like the bengali like there's a very like racialized uh line between who's dying and who's not dying in these rescue attempts
1: yeah i mean it's worth noting that the vast majority of people on board the sydney cove were bengali Bengali. so they like were overrepresented in every group but you're quite right of the three people who made it back to sydney on foot two were white right so after he took bass south to what is now coal cliff to show him the coal yeah clark took a berth on a on an ocean going vessel in august bound for calcutta to tell the ship owners of its fate not a good business trip no and hamilton the captain had to wait until december until he could get a ship acquire a ship to head back to preservation for the rum and remaining men oh wow so um bennett and the other men that were waiting there were there for six months (laughs) on (laughs) stint number two (laughs) how come it took so long because there was it sydney was such a small town there wasn't an ocean going ship ready to just be grabbed you know they had to wait for someone to be like yeah you can take my ship
0: yeah that's so they had to wait longer the second time than the first group who were waiting for the rescue mission but they would have mentally been in a better place because they knew that that they had it people who knew they were there and they were someone would eventually come together
1: exactly yeah there's some interesting little side anecdotes here um which might have occurred to you which is that uh when word got to sydney about all this rum in the middle of the Bass Strait, it wasn't only the uh, owners of the rum that were keen to go and get it back. Yeah, it's a treasure island. Yeah, a group of 14 Irish convicts concocted a scheme to steal a boat in Parramatta and sail it to preservation to claim the stash. Yeah. What's amazing about this story is that they actually made it as far as Wilson's Promontory. Okay, you're going to have
0: to tell me where that is. Oh, I thought you'd know it. It's the southernmost tip of mainland Australia. Oh, gosh. Wow. That is incredible. On it, And presumably this boat that was in Parramatta might not have even been designed for open ocean. It yeah, not sure. Wet.
1: It was, yeah, I, I wasn't sure about that, but yeah, they did, they did knock it
0: off in Parramatta. That is incredible. That's very well done.
1: Yeah, so they got to a small island down near Wilson's Prom and the group was split into two for some internal political reasons. And half of them took the boat and headed north back to Sydney to turn themselves in. Obviously, they decided the mission was for failure, where two of them were put to death for the escape. Now, the other seven were thus stuck on, marooned on this small island in the Bass Strait, a different island. What happened? They got so far and then they just packed it in. Someone lost their nerve and they were marooned there until Bass came through in January of 1798. And he saw their fire and thought he had found, you know, the men from the preservation. So he stopped there. Anyway, he gave them some provisions and said that his boat was full, so he said he'd pick them back up on his return journey to Sydney. And when he came back, this is super dodgy, but apparently he could only fit two of them on his boat. What? So he picked them all up and he dropped the rest of them. He took the sick two all the way back with him. He dropped the rest of them on the mainland, gave them his compass and a gun, and told them to walk to Sydney. (laughs) What? And they were never heard from again. Yeah, not surprising. Um, but perhaps <sighs> possible that they caught up with the Laskers in Maruya.
0: Yeah, it's terrifying just the distances and the I- isolation that these people would have been in, like, yeah, in land that they knew nothing about.
1: Yeah, it's just so it's so funny, all these people, like, different groups out and about. And it's like the scale of that area is so vast, but they just, like, bump into each other.
0: Yeah. So, oh, I'll be back oh. for you in a few weeks <laughs> oh, What's that fire over there? Oh, just <laughs> yeah. some convicts who escaped many years ago <laughs> um,
1: So by February 1798 The cargo had been recovered And the wreck of the Sydney Cove Was left to be Sinking slowly into the sea Clark, obviously a bit of an eye For commercial enterprise He turned his patchy journal Into a 6,000 word piece That was syndicated in newspapers And journals and whatever Across the empire became a literary sensation. He did, but the whole thing is written in a tone that is extremely different to his journal. So the ghostwriter
0: is very visible, I think you could say in it. Right, okay, so we have both. We have the original journal and this. The journal's lost, but there are quotes from the journal in this thing. Uh, Okay, so he didn't even pretend to write it himself. He got someone else to write it and quote his journal? Yeah, seems like. So the... The the piece that was written
1: describes unfrequented deserts that he was forced to cross and his encounters with barbarous hordes. Right. So it was a bit of um, pulp for turn of the century,
0: you know, housewives to lap up kind of thing. (laughs) Blame it on housewives, yeah. I doubt the housewives were the major audience for this. (laughs) It was the housewives. (laughs) It definitely
1: was. Okay. Anyhow... (laughs) By 1803, so five years later, there's now a British settlement on the Tasmanian mainland, and there's some 200 sealers based on the islands of the Fano group. They're based on different islands, but they're going between the islands, clubbing seals and sending
0: them to China this is what i didn't know they were sent to china by yeah this is what i know of early kind of economic activity in the bass what's now called the bass Strait
1: yeah so i mean that is also comes in a way from the preservation's misadventures because that was how they knew there was an abundance of seals to be clubbed right so that is the story of the sydney cove of a sydney
0: cove i should say yeah good for making very cryptic clues the naming of that boat So it never made it to Sydney Cove. Never made it to its eponymous cove.
1: No, it didn't. It is still in situ on preservation or off Preservation Island. It wasn't until 1977 that some divers relocated it. There was sort of some oral history about this, but it was more or less a forgotten piece of history. Um, And in 1977, a group of divers uh, rediscovered it. And um, a lot of the stuff that they salvaged from the wreck the wreck of the Sydney Cove is actually at the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston. Yeah, that would be a great place to visit. There's a couple of little contemporary 21st century, well, actually one of them is technically in the 20th century, but only by a whisker, anecdotes that relate to this story that I quite like. Yeah, that's here. The first is uh, the 200th year anniversary, 1997. A group of scouts from Victoria reenacted the walk. Wow. Impressive. It's a long walk. Yeah a good success story for the Scouts. And that led to a bit of renewed interest along the way, as you'd expect. So there's a few plaques and what have you now about it. Right. But the real cracker came more recently when James Square Brewery decided to make an ale called Preservation Ale using yeast extracted from one of the unopened beer bottles
0: that was found in the wreck. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's a very niche beer. I unsurprisingly have never heard of it.
1: Yeah, well, it's not widely available. But uh, if anyone knows how I can get my hands on a pint of delicious preservation ale, please do get in touch.
0: Yeah, I would definitely be interested in that. So they must, I guess, once you have the yeast culture, you can then uh, reproduce a lot of it and it will start to mutate in different ways. But it's still coming from that original beer bottle that was under the sea for a few hundred years.
1: Yeah, and they tried to make a beer in the style of beers that were drunk at that point in time apparently apparently it's a porter style beer with hints of black currant and spices
0: sounds delightful mmm yeah I wonder how much they kind of made very many I don't imagine interesting that James Squire took that on as well yeah well it's the whole convict thing isn't it yeah kind of yeah so I'd heard this story
1: I heard this story and I read a book that came out a few years ago called Preservation by Jock Sorong now, it's a work of historical fiction, and he takes the journal, the, you know, the small piece of information we have, and sort of fleshes it out with this m- much more elaborate work of fiction. Yeah. And it starts out with William Clark being murdered in Calcutta, and this, like, tyrannical working class guy who's, you know, on the run or whatever, kills him, takes
0: his identity and gets on the boat. Oh, wow. So, what? What? So there's a tyrannical working class guy who kills the real William Clark and then gets on the boat impersonating him, an imposter. Yeah. But also happens to be literate and able to write a journal? Yeah. Right. Okay.
1: It's a it's a it's a work of fiction. I
0: should add here again, since you seem to have missed that key point. So I don't know why they had to add that to the like. It's already an extraordinary story. You don't need the person to actually be an imposter to. Well, you know.
1: if you would just let me continue for one moment, all right, all right. you will find out that the reason he decides to employ that narrative device is because the fake William Clark. Basically, I don't know if he orchestrates the crashing of the ship. I don't think he does. But once the rescue mission's underway, he's determined to kill off everyone along the way. Oh, okay. So he's killing them all and making it sound like because he's, it's, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because he's writing the whole journal. You can position it that the journal's like a a work of fiction itself. Yeah. Yeah. And he's murdering everyone along the way. And that, like, sort of penultimate scene when they're on Guatemala Beach. They're crawling up the beach and he's trying to kill the last two guys. And then so little is known of any of these people um, after they reach Sydney that you can sort of run pretty free with the whole thing and there's almost nothing to contradict you. So anyway, that's the story he chose to make out of what we do know about the preservation story, which got me more interested in, you know, the actual story behind the story. Yeah. But it was a listener suggestion from Nick. Oh. So thank you, Nick, for getting me to dive a little bit deeper and find out the actual history. Behind the book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so to do that, I bought a book called From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories by Mark McKenna. And that's got about five different sort of perfect stories from Sydney stories, really, like little forgotten pieces of history from Australia's early days. Mm -hmm. And the the main one, the sort of first 60 pages, is all about the preservation story. So that's what I've used pretty much
0: um, from start to finish in the telling of this story. Mm -hmm. Ah, oh, wonderful! It's great when you get a book like that. Yeah, very nice. Um, and you'd recommend that book? Yeah, I'd recommend both books to be honest. I can tell that you weren't um rapt at the idea of no, fiction. No, I well, I, I like I like fiction as well, but I'm, I'm, I'm very dull and I like nonfiction quite a lot. So just to clarify, the journal does not exist anymore all we have is a popular account that was a bestseller of sorts or or at least a widely sold book that includes excerpts from a journal that is now lost yeah that's right interesting you mentioned the batavia incident
1: and um i kind of wanted to tie that back into the goings-on on preservation island obviously none of that happened so what's interesting on preservation is that the hierarchy established on board was retained when they landed on the island Mm -hmm. uh there wasn't a like a breakdown in the in the functioning of society or a reimagination of how society should be organized right we don't know too much about how the society of the the walking party was organized um but the way you sort of said that you reckon clark might have withheld supplies suggests that maybe there was a a strict hierarchy that was being played out in that environment, which does make me wonder why um, or how how they might have used what tools were available to them to keep a, some, some sort of hierarchy in place. Or if, it, if they did and, you know, perhaps the groups that went missing just decided to split apart and go on their own and weren't as successful, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I suppose, possible that they were... In a way, any of the groups that were left behind might have become assimilated into the Aboriginal nations or tribal groups that they passed through, or something else might have happened to
0: them altogether. Right, because that is always a possibility, right, that they just ended up forming positive relationships with the Aboriginal groups around them and then kind of integrating into that society. Yeah. Fascinating story, Jed. Um, I hadn't heard anything about it personally. I didn't know about this one.
1: Yeah, glad you liked it. It's a cracker, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you can hear it, but uh, in the background of this whole recording is the sound of crashing waves
0: in Manly. Just to add atmosphere. <laughs> Feels very fitting, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that, Jed. That was, yeah, that was great. I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm very impressed that you managed to get such a great clue out of it with the Sydney Cove. What was it to do with preservation of the Sydney Cove and rum? Yeah, it was, so
1: I described the story as a rum-soaked story, about Sydney Cove and her <laughs> preservation.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised that I didn't didn't get that one.
1: Very clever It clue. took me a few cracks at structuring it <laughs> to make sure that it was uh, grammatically correct and true. <laughs> yeah. while making the appearance of being about something <laughs> completely different.
0: yep Now, nah, fair play, very good clue. <laughs> thank I think you, that's thank probably going to go down as our best clue so far. If anyone got that one, I'm yeah, very impressed.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for listening. Glad you enjoyed it. It was a fun story to research now that you've had a couple of weeks to prepare a clue knowing how brilliant mine was, I'm looking forward to hearing it now.
0: Yeah, so I've, I've written a clue. It's far more long-winded uh, and not cryptic at all. And also, disappointingly for you, you actually do know what this episode is about. We're just gonna. I feel like it's important to flag that here because we genuinely don't know what the, each other's stories are going to be about on all occasions, uh, except for this upcoming episode because of a few quirks of organizing our life but you know you know about this topic and in fact that comes into the clue so without further ado uh, my clue runs thus well before the gold rush of the mid 1800s there was another resource extraction boom that was instrumental in the expansion of the early colony the rush for what was known colloquially as red gold dominates the foundation of places as diverse as Kiama, Maitland and Byron Bay and it became the third largest export from the nascent port of Sydney. While the boom is long gone now, its presence is still to be observed in many of the older buildings in Sydney today. Now, I think you know what this is about, Jed, and you have, in fact, mentioned this uh, this very topic a couple of times already in previous Oops. episodes. <laughs> so I imagine that the more astute of our listeners might have picked up on this as well. But I hope that uh, everyone will enjoy it.
1: When there's a mention of red gold, it's hard not to get as excited about it as I know that you will be um and so i i do enjoy bringing it to your attention yep i have a good idea what this episode's about and i know that you are extremely well researched well (laughs) so i'm looking forward to hearing all about don't put yourself down you are and i'm looking forward to hearing all about it next week
0: it's been a bit of a hard one to find information about so it's more that I've, i've spent quite a lot of time digging in weird places to try to find out about it but yeah Um, hopefully i can pull out a few of those references from you (laughs) through some choice questioning yeah well i'm sure there'll be a lot of questioning all right well i hope that you all enjoyed that episode if you did please don't hesitate to uh write a nice review of us on whichever platform uh podcast platform you listen on or uh give us a five star rating or just tell your friends about us because we really appreciate you spreading the word. We also are on Instagram if you're interested in seeing some of the pictures and on Facebook. Uh, we try to post some images, which I'm sure Jed has from this uh, this interesting story. Do you, Jed? I will. <laughs> and we also can be reached by email at storiesfromsydney@gmail.com. Uh That's a great way to get in touch if you have... Um, any suggestions for episodes like this one for instance please if you do have a suggestion make sure to indicate in the title of the email whether it's for me Alistair or for Jed uh, because we then make sure not to read each other's emails so that the topic can be a surprise for the listener each week we really appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time